The Ascent of Board Games is a podcast in which we discuss the history and evolution of board game mechanics, concepts, and themes from the dawn of history to today's newest releases. We talk, we laugh, we pick on each other, and we occasionally get things wrong. But we hope to provide both entertainment and education to today's discerning podcast listener, you. Welcome, everybody, to episode 29 of the Ascent of Board Game. We're here to talk about board games, oddly enough, like it says in the name. And because it is December, or will have become December by the time you're hearing this, it's time for a traditional year-end wrap-up. When we first started talking about doing this, we decided that the wrap-up was going to be really, really short, which is 2020 sucked. And while that is true, we were able to come up with some things that we all enjoyed or liked about the year, as well as some plans for what we want to look forward to and try to achieve next year. Mike, do you want to tell us your first highlight of 2020? Yeah, I think despite everything, what this pandemic, for me at least, has done is kind of forced me to interact with people online that I probably would never have interacted with before this. So, you know what? I'm going to put it down real cliche. It's all about the people. I think I've met more people from more places than I ever would have pre-pandemic. And you know what? I've got, I think, some new, just like regular gaming groups that I meet with online now. Wow. Meeting more people sounds like a negative to me, but <laughs> yeah. um, I mean, that's because I, I prefer to live under a rock, but I can understand that you I might I guess find as that the social butterfly of our group, which is really <laughs> weird, I've enjoyed meeting new people, especially through the digital implementations present to us. Just because like... I don't know. Like, I've really enjoyed seeing how other people game, and like, I've started a new Gloomhaven campaign, and it's fascinating to see what some people have focused on in that game compared to our group, and you know, new experiences. Yeah, I think for me, the problem is that I have, you know, since my days back in like World of Warcraft and that kind of thing, I have such an ingrained aversion against playing with random internet strangers. I don't think I could bring myself to do it. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, I think my superpower has been a high tolerance of other people's BS. Like, <laughs> I will say it has not all been great. There are definitely some people that I've met over the past year that I'm like, mm, it was fun. Bye. But like, I think for the most part, it has been a positive experience for me. I uh, watched friend of the show, Curtis, a while ago, a couple weeks ago, when he still had a computer, play... Kingdom Death Monster with this other random person, right? Because I was on light and he was playing it with this rather random person. And the other random person left like 13 times. And like one time he's like, I gotta go put together a cheese plate. I'll be back. And I was like, Curtis, <laughs> what is even going on in this guy's life right now? Like, I just want to like live. I just want to watch the podcast of that guy's life. It was amazing. Sometimes in the middle of Kingdom Death, you have to stop and put a cheese plate together. <laughs> it happens, I guess. Yeah, but exactly. I think really, Joe, the takeaway from that story is that Curtis is jonesing for some more Kingdom Death, and we should definitely oblige. It's been very clear about that. I mean, if he had a computer, yeah, we would do that thing. You should help him with that to save him from cheese plate people. If he got a computer, that's true. I mean, what kind of fool puts his computer underneath a leak in his ceiling? Oh, <sighs> ouch. Yeah. yeah. It ended up not being great. I can imagine. Are we even certain Curtis is alive? Like, I don't know if he can survive that long without a computer. <laughs> I mean, he might be dead right now. It's really hard to be sure. 
So, Jason, find out, and if we need to record an in-memoriam thing at the start of this segment, we'll do that, and I'll plug it in later. All right, Joe, talk to me about something happy from 2020. So, we were going back through the list of, like, what the heck happened in 2020, and one thing, I was thinking about it, and, like, my mind boggled at the concept that earlier in this year, we were all in the same room together for a while. Mm-hmm. Specifically, Jason's off-lauded AFK occurred this year. Like, this year, guys, this year. I was totally blown away. And during this year's AFK, I had purchased, and as a group we played, for, I would say, easily a third of the total show, Mechs vs. Minions. Uh, nice. And Mechs vs. Minions is a ton of fun. And so for those of you who don't know what Mechs vs. Minions is, it's a programmed movement game. It's a purely cooperative game. There are up to four players take to control of yodels which are uh, <laughs> entities driving around these mech creatures. And you're off to kill minions and do other random things. The game is broken up into missions, and each of those missions has a different goal. And it's a program movement game, so there's a drafting phase where you draft an action card, and then you play it on a tableau in front of you, and then you execute your tableau from left to right. So your tableau might say, turn 90 degrees, then turn 90 degrees again, then move forward three spaces. And if you don't want to do any of those things, too bad. Tough. You're definitely doing them. So it leads to a bunch of really fun chaos. It leads to a bunch of moments where everyone gets to like see something amazing happen just by quinky dink. And it's just, it's hilarious. Everybody breaks into laughter and just like the stress of the game is, is kind of always present. So it's a great game. And it's produced by League of Legends. And functionally, what they decided was like, well, what if we made zero dollars on this board game? And just gave everyone all hundred dollars in the game because the game is gorgeous from a production standpoint. Right, yeah, it comes it's with these. It's incredibly overproduced for its price. Camping. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's ridiculous. All the minis are washed, all the main mechs are painted, and it's got like metal coins for like all the tracking bits. Like it's crazy. It's bonkers. Just to show you how ridiculous these people were when they came up with this thing, the little minions that you're basically just stomping all over the entire game. There's like three different alternate sculpts for them, and the insert for the box. You can put any one of the minions into any one of the spots for the minions. They work for any one of them. They literally designed it that way, which I had never seen before in any of my probably 100 miniatures games that I own. I couldn't believe Most it. Most of which cost more than Max vs. Oh, minions. Yeah, all of which. I think it's safe to say yeah. cost more than Max vs. Minions. <laughs> yeah, we talked about this one a bit in our program movement episode, and it is probably one of the best bang for your buck deals you can get in gaming. Not only are the components great, but it is a tremendous amount of fun. My favorite thing, I think, is that like when you take damage, you draw a damage card and sometimes it just does a random thing. But a lot of times it'll be turn left 90 degrees or, or whatever, and it'll affect your movement. And then it goes in a random slot, overriding whatever you've got there. So as your mech gets damaged, it gets increasingly hard to predict what you're actually going to do on your turn, which if you're in the right mindset is totally fun. Yep. But yeah, when you start out each mission, first of all, it looks impossible. <laughs> first time you see it, you're like, no, there's just no way. But also during the mission, you start out with one card and it's a really pathetic move. But, you know, four turns later, you're just ripping through minions because you're doing four or five actions every turn and blasting uh, a couple of minions with each action. So it really gives a fast, fast MOBA style ramp up for each mission. How weird. Missions are only 30, 45 minutes. And all of that $100 value they're still selling it for $70 or something like that. Like last time I looked, yeah, it is very good. Agreed. Highly recommended. So Jason, what about you? 
I had to reach way back to find some of these some of these things that were fun in 2020, just because uh yeah, it's been a year. But one of the ones that I got was one of my uh, Kickstarters from Mythic Games called Reich Busters Project Vril. The idea here is you're playing a squad of very very almost cartoonish allied heroes, each with their own weapons and their own special abilities, their own deck of cards that are unique to them, and you're going on missions fighting the Nazis and and basically a you know a highly stylized World War II type scenario. The Nazis and this, the Reichbusters, I'm sorry, not the Nazis, the Reichbusters. <laughs> They've basically discovered this new energy source called Vril, which is, I went down a rat hole trying to figure out what on earth that was, because <laughs> apparently it's a reference to some old book. I was like, I don't, I don't, whatever. But anyway, it's an energy source that you can do things like reanimate zombies, you can create mechs, you can make cyborg-human mech hybrids, like all sorts of crazy stuff. And the first phase of the game, you're basically trying to sneak around the compound and trying to obtain whatever your objective is. Maybe you're trying to find some secret plans. Maybe you're trying to assassinate some Vril Minster, is what they call them. Maybe you're just trying to rescue a, a soldier that had been captured, something like that. And each round, you're sneaking around. You're making a dice roll for noise. If you generate too much noise, it summons enemy tokens that might spawn patrols or bring more enemies to the board. But every turn, the alarm track is moving no matter what. And at some point, the alarm will go off. In which case, your other heroes that aren't really designed around stealth, but are designed about machine gunning scores of Nazis <laughs> down and throwing grenades everywhere, they start to shine. And you're just basically trying to destroy all the things you possibly can and try and get to the exit before you all get captured or time runs out. Like most Kickstarters, this was super delayed. When it finally showed up, I gave it an immediate try. And I was pleasantly surprised. I was worried because a lot of people were complaining about the rules, and they were complaining that there was already an errata out, because of course there was. It's a Mythic Games release. But I found it to be much more entertaining than I expected it to be, and I'm looking forward to trying it again. It's a lot of minis. It's a lot of cardboard. I'm shocked you got a game <laughs> yeah, with shocking, a lot of minis. Right? Kind of hard to get to the table just because there's a lot of stuff to set up. But to their credit, Mythic has recognized that there were some issues. They um, they misprinted some tokens, for example, but they kind of went the extra step, and they're shipping probably next year an update pack where now all the hero cards have been revamped, where now the keywords they have on them, which kind of make the hero unique, all have descriptions of what those powers actually do. So you're not constantly referring back to the, the reference section in the rulebook. They corrected a lot of stuff, and that's all being shipped out to backers for free. So it's kind of annoying they had to do it at all, but they did the right thing by you know agreeing to do this for free. Hopefully I'll actually receive it at some point. But even without it, I've really enjoyed the game. I definitely need to get it on the table again. Holy crap, the designer's Jake Thornton. Ooh. He's an old Games Workshop designer. Did the Dungeon Saga, Star Saga games. Oh, I had no idea. Not that Star Saga. As well as a bunch of classic, classic Games Workshop. Wow, that's interesting. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. The Revenge of Jason is what <laughs> now you cost Frank some money. <laughs> put, put your wallet away. <laughs> I definitely want to try this, though. I'm always interested in a new co-op game like this. So The mechanic where you've got kind of the sneaky phase and then the balls-out action movie phase is what really kind of drew me to it, because I, I kind of like that hey, we have to be really, really careful and strategic in this first part. It'll make the second part easier. And then, you know, no matter what you do, something's going to go wrong. And it's just like, okay, what's the most efficient way we can wreck a whole bunch of Nazis before we get out of this castle? (laughs) (laughs) It sounds like a souped up V Commandos in some ways. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The description, that's kind of what drew me to it. And personally, I find it a little bit easier than V Commandos. (laughs) That's probably right. Oh yeah, V Commandos is heartlessly brutal. So Frank, tell us about what made you happy in 2020. 
we pretty much dropped off the planet in mm-hmm. February. So it's been all virtual games. But we still play our co-op campaign thing. And I think the game that's really done it for us is For the King. That is a bizarre, bizarre game. I mean, it plays a little bit like a JRPG. You're wandered across the land, slowly growing up the level of your three characters, going into dungeons, fighting things using a you-go-they-go. But everything's wrapped in a board game goodness. It's almost like the latest edition of Runebound. You see the dice rolls. Yeah, this is a computer game, by the way, for listeners who aren't familiar with it. Not yeah, a board totally game. computer I game. I mean, it could very easily be a board game. Sure. You need a lot yeah, of miniatures, though. a bunch though. of binary dice <laughs> and something. Yeah, it's... I mean, you're moving by hexes. There is a lot of things going on that would be hard to do because it takes care of all of the uh, elements for you. It'd be a bunch like, of decks of cards, functionally. Like, yeah, you could simulate totally, this yeah. with a, a lot of cards. A lot. But honestly, yeah, it's really good as a computer game, so you should just play that. Yeah, I mean, for sure. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. And it does three-player co-op really well. You take turns, but you can each have your own version, you know, share the screen or whatever. In particular, there's also about five different campaigns. Mm-hmm. And a campaign takes uh, eight to 12 hours to play through to level up from level one to 10, take out the boss. Each of those games feels like a decent length campaign questy game. Yeah. Mike and I, in front of the show, John Richardson, all played through two of the campaigns thus far. And they're all a lot of fun. They're very entertaining. They do interesting things, right? You get to, you have a fair amount of agency, each player does, but then you really kind of want to be grouped together to participate in as many combats as possible and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, that is one of the best things is if you're within two to four hexes of one of your friends, you are pulled into a combat. So you join them for combat. So sticking together is huge. But then since time is your enemy, you do need to spread out and cover multiple things, send someone to go answer requests. So you're always torn between those two things yep. until you get a boat. Yeah. Right. Then everyone just teleports into the boat. and It's great. <laughs> boat teleportation yeah, is pretty boat. good. My first high point from 2020 is one that I think would have been perfectly good just as a regular board game. But the fact that it came out right when the pandemic was really getting going and the digital implementation is spectacular is Forgotten Waters. It's a piratey kind of paragraph game with little Mad Lib elements. You're basically cooperatively crewing a ship that is sailing around and fighting off other ships and investigating weird magical situations and dealing with crew mutinies and that sort of thing. There are a bunch of different characters in the game who each have their own kind of storyline that evolves and you explore over the course of the game. It plays up to seven. The online tools are amazing. It's just fun. It's silly enough that you can just sit around the table and laugh at it, but also there are some interesting tactical decisions you need to make. There's a bunch of separate storylines that you can progress through, and they all kind of do different things. I just think it's a winner from start to finish. I think it's the first fully successful game in Plaid Hat's Crossroads series. Dead of Winter is good, but it still has some issues. This one, I just think, is pretty much a winner from top to bottom. Yeah, it's lighter and plays more like a party game, and it plays with uh, more people which is unusual. It's got a bit of like Tales of the Arabian Night. You're kind of choosing your reaction quickly without quite knowing exactly what's going on in a lot of cases. Yep. And while it is cooperative, you're sort of struggling with the other players to get higher on the renown track or swagger, I think it is. So you can choose your action first and let the low ranking people have to deal with the crappy tasks you don't want to do. Yeah, because there is a one worker placement for each player. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it goes in order from top to bottom. And being on the bottom sucks. Yeah. Yep. It's got this great 
character advancement that feels good. Because, like, as you're doing things, you're getting your little stars on your map, and then that's going to give you... Is that what gives you the stat bumps? You get stat bumps, and stat bumps will periodically get you to a star. That's right. And then when you get enough stars, you get a, the next piece of your personal story. Oh, that's how um, Gen 7 works. I enjoy this game immensely more than Gen 7. Yeah, it sounds like they've refined the system into something that's fun. <laughs> the other thing is, I'm not generally a fan of like recorded audio and voiceover stuff in games. I'm a pretty fast reader, so I usually just find reading the stuff is faster. But the voice acting and sound effects and stuff in the Forgotten Waters app is great. And the writing's funny. It is. It I mean, is genuinely great. funny, which is hard to find. I'm a big fan of this game all the way around, so that was definitely one of my hits of 2020. I do enjoy Forgotten Waters and would love to play that again. We should do that thing. Oh, absolutely. All right, so I think we're wrapping back around to Mike for take two. One of the other highlights of this year was when the pandemic started, friend of the show, John, Brian, Joe, and I all sat down on Tabletop Simulator to play Rise of Queensdale, which was a game recommended by Frank and a game that Brian had gotten a physical copy of at the beginning of this year, or was that last year? And then we never got to play it. So we finally did that. And I really enjoyed that game. Me too. It was more Euro-y than a lot of what I play lately. But it was constantly interesting the way it evolved, because it is kind of a legacy-style campaign in a Euro game form. The online scripting was great. I am a little sad we did not get to use the plunger. because, like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I still have the physical copy. It's true. We could play again. But yeah, no, just like the mechanic of actually having the face of the dice be the thing that is changing as you play, I really enjoyed and would love to see more games do that. There was Dice Forge. I might need to go back and revisit that game. I did pick up a copy of it. Dice Forge does have a great implementation on Board Game Arena. Hmm. We played it on Thursday. It doesn't have the physicality of, you know, popping the faces <laughs> off the dice. And watching them fly across the table in horror. It's the <laughs> slide yeah. to the edge no. before plummeting <laughs> to the carpet where you'll never find them again. But yeah, one of the things Queenstale has that's really amazing is, you know, the fact that you're upgrading your dice, you're changing out your tiles. And so there's a lot of permanent changes between games for a legacy game. A lot of them kind of you reset, you keep the one tiny tweak that you got legacy wise. But this one, it's almost like you're building up your entire world over the course of the legacy game. Yeah, the other thing I was very impressed by is the balancing mechanisms it used. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is a game where there are a lot of moving parts that can go in a lot of different directions. And yet somehow at the end of it, we were all within a game or two of winning. Yeah. Every time you win a game in the campaign, you need more points to win the next game. So you're not on an even playing field. You have more stuff but you also have to do more stuff in order to win. And it turned out to be extremely well-balanced, at least in our campaign. Yeah, you do get more points, but it's not enough of an offset. Your point generation increases, but your goal post for winning the game increases more. Yeah. And there were a couple of stretches where somebody would win like two games in a row and it would not feel great because you're like, oh, that person's running away with it. But then as you play, you're like, oh, sure, but they're not going to win this next game because they just 
can't. They have to get 20 extra points, but are only generating like one or two extra. Yeah. And if you happen to be a player that is like significantly behind the leader, there are some very neat payback things you can get, which I don't want to spoil, which basically suddenly the person in last place becomes a real threat to mess with your life. But also if you're not going to win... You can start working on your infrastructure. Exactly. You know, realize early on that, ah, screw it. I'm just going to throw this game and start building up for future. Yeah, really, really well put together. I, I recommend that yeah, one. Yeah, I feel like I feel like a lot of legacy games don't have that component. I mean, granted, this is one of the, I think it might have been the first one, like Risk Legacy. I feel like that game just kind of <laughs> snowballs into the same person winning constantly. But if they have this kind of rebalancing, that that's a really clever way to do it. And it keeps the games interesting, right? There's no, the momentum we had playing this legacy game kind of fizzles out when it's like, well, we know this person's going to win again because they've won the last three games. Yep. And the other thing is there's going to be some rule that's introduced in game three or so that is like, all right, here's a whole new way to score points. And everybody will jump on that and score a whole bunch of points that way. And then after a couple games, that thing is kind of done. So now all the people who spent all their energy getting into those points kind of have to rebuild from scratch because that engine isn't working for them any longer. It's just it's just really well done. I generally don't like competitive legacy games. Risk Legacy was fun because it was new, but it was also still Risk. Charterstone, I didn't particularly care for, but Rise of Queensdale is really good. I think one of the big differences between Charterstone and Queensdale is that Charterstone felt to me like each of the players from the get-go were put onto this path of like, here is how you are going to score points. Yeah. That if you deviate from that path only stood to make you weaker in the positioning of the game. Mm-hmm. And I didn't love that feeling. Queensdale, I think, was a lot more open. I mean, it gave you a lot more opportunity to kind of tailor your strategy. Yep. Yeah, those resource paths from Charterstone were definitely gone, which is good. Yes, Mm -hmm. agreed. Joe, we're back to you. So something our gaming group finished this year, that I think it's worth kind of mentioning and talking about some, was Madara. Was that this year? It seems so long ago. It seems so long ago. Madara is a, for those of you who don't know, Madara is a giant big box game where you are playing adventurers in a really interesting universe that's kind of like right next to Earth. So it has a lot of like pop culture references, but is also a fantasy world and has a bunch of weird stuff going on. And is super anime. The story was good, but really long. (laughs) And, like, the combat was really interesting, right? Like, it was very challenging. Lots of interesting stuff happening. Lots of moment-to-moment decisions were always very interesting. So I think it's definitely worth checking out if you haven't checked it out. Though there is a hefty price tag associated with it, for sure. Yeah, and to be fair, when we say we finished it, we finished Act 1. Act 2 and 3 are theoretically coming sometime within the next several years. So you say. As a result of a Kickstarter. So you Allegedly. But it was neat because it is a game where plot decisions you make can have significant consequences. Do you take this guy back to stand trial or do you let him go because he seems sorry for what he did? Changed a million things down the road in that campaign. (laughs) What's bonkers is you get toward the end and (laughs) there's several different paths you take for one section to explain what each of the characters who may or may not be in your story is adding to the uh, plot. (laughs) Yeah. The text was way too long. But uh, the story was interesting. Really enjoyed the game. I thought mechanically it was great. I think I liked the setting, but boy, did I have a hard time following the thread of that game. (laughs) Just like, you know, we'd finish a mission and there'd be 
five pages of two-columned, ten-point font to read through. And the only thing I can take away from it is that all of us at some point would put our hand on the shoulder of Jason's character. <laughs> oh, really? That's the, the real lesson of that game. We were listening to, the, in essence, the book-on-tape version before we moved to the cliff notes, and we'd be listening to the book-on-tape version, I'd look over at Jason and just point to where we were in the text on the book. And it'd be like a fifth of the way through, and Jason would just be like, oh no, oh no. And Mike would sleep through half of it, it was great. And Mike yeah. would sleep through more than half, more than We half. played late at night. But yeah, like that, the story was... Too much, way too much. They spent an awful lot of time continuously establishing the personality of the characters, whose personality was clear in the first encounter. Yeah. Somebody really was trying to write a screenplay that had a game in it. But the game was good. Artistically, I thought the game was great. It was vibrant, colorful, different. I really like the mechanisms of the game, the way you level up and the options that you have as you build out a character. It always felt like there were lots of options and there were lots of cool builds that you could play with. Yeah, and, and especially later on when we had like different characters we could swap in and out, finding the right combination for different things was cool. That reminded yeah. me a lot of almost like a Monster Hunter game or even that Kingdom Death quality of like, if I build my character with a sword and board, they are going to feel and play much differently than the exact same character being built with like two-handed axe or something like mm -hmm. that. And that was pretty cool. I think at one point my character ended up just wielding two shields. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You did. What? Yeah. Oh, Wow. Okay. Worked really well, actually. <laughs> yeah, there was a number of times during the game it had the great experience where it's like, okay, we're having a boss fight. We read the boss's abilities and it's health. We're like, well, this is impossible. Mm -hmm. And we always managed. I mean, I can't remember if we ever actually failed a boss fight, but like it was very close many, many times. It came very close yeah. Oh, yeah. many, many times. I think early on we um, we failed one because we did not take the boss fights as seriously as we needed to at that point. So we definitely had a early mission where we're like, we died to prove how deadly the bosses were. I think we still won that one. I think there was one person alive at the end. Sure. I think it was really, really close. I think that was also the same mission we figured out that if you get pushed into a hole, <laughs> yep. you're just yeah, dead. Yeah, yeah. Just die. <laughs> oh, yeah. That was the one where you died within the first round, right? The first yeah. bad guy action killed your character, which is why I think you feel so emotional about that fight. <laughs> And then you got to sit around and do nothing, which sucks. The other good thing about the game is that the missions are constantly surprising. Yeah. From introducing stuff in the middle of a mission to, okay, we're done, this is winding down, and then suddenly the boss changes to a final form, or uh, the ground opens up and there's another room beneath you, or whatever. Plus the objectives are always very different. Or they split the party up into two groups or something weird. There's a lot of that kind of stuff. Yeah, and the whole thing is like, well, there's a token here, and the first time somebody sees it, some things are going to happen, and that's all you know. <laughs> mm -hmm. And it's not going to be good. Yeah, I guaranteed. Like, I like the fact that the board changed. Like, it's not like a lot of dungeon crawlers where you set up the board ahead of time, and you're like, okay, well, I know the final objective is probably over here somewhere. Like, we had ones where it's like, yeah, no, this was actually just a kind of a joke up here. This isn't the actual board. It's all of this <laughs> underground section that you now have to fight through, and look at all these horrible monsters we've spawned. They did a good job with, like, as much as we were tired of seeing cave sickles, it was kind of cool that they, they had a mechanism for the more of them that were close to each other, the more powerful they became and the different abilities they had. I thought that they was They got a little scary. Choice. Like yeah. when they got to that high level, mm -hmm. they got a little scary. One thing we are probably going to get this year is the upgrade kit. 
which redoes a lot of things and includes um, more advanced versions of Cave Sickles. So that the Cave Sickles level up a bit. Does it come with a second Empower die? <laughs> That's the only or just a second set of dice. Oh, that yeah. Di- yeah, the yeah. dice situation there was a little a little rough. Jason, what's next on your list? Sure, yeah, so let's keep the Kickstarter train rolling here. Got another Kickstarter in that was very, very, very delayed called Giga Robo. It's basically, hey, would you like to watch an 80s mech show turn into a mech skirmish game? Because that's, yes, that's essentially the idea here. <laughs> <laughs> and looking at, like, the guy who designed it, Alex Cheng, he clearly is a huge 80s anime fan, or even cartoon fan, I'd probably argue. And the whole idea here is you pick a pilot and pick up some cards for that pilot. You pair them with a, a mech that has its own set of cards that you pick. You put them on a battlefield that's inside of a city, complete with three-dimensional building terrain. And you just go at each other until someone's armor has been depleted to zero and their mech explodes. And it's it's just a lot of fun. It breaks out of a lot of the common tropes of skirmish games where it's like, I take my turn, you take your turn. I take my turn, you take your turn. It's more dynamic than that. So, like, I can run up, I can spend my fighting spirit, because that's what the resource is called, <laughs> to do, like, you know, heavenly punch of the cosmos or whatever nonsense name it's been given. And I can punch your robot... And then your robot has the opportunity to counter by spending cards and fighting spirit of their own to try and block that attack. And there's a lot of give and take. Some of that give and take is, hey, I actually managed to land a hit on you. I literally just punched you through a building, and now that does some stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Which, as a lifelong mech fan, I was just like, yes, give me right now. I want it. (laughs) It is a great game. The mechs all play very, very differently. You have your slow, plodding, massively armored guys. You've got your long-range snipers. You've got your mech that's literally armed with chain anchors that you can grab people and toss them all over the board. It's an absolute blast, and it's one of the random, weird games that actually has a use for D12s, which I will always appreciate. <laughs> that poor die is never used for anything. But yeah, I mean, it was one of those ones that I backed because I was like, I love the art aesthetic they're going for. I like skirmish games and mechs in particular. It came with pre-painted mechs, which I don't know how he managed to do that. And he even commissioned a freaking soundtrack that is 100% like anime <laughs> intro songs. It's, it's nice. so great. <laughs> I had actually run into the creator a couple times at uh, various Gen Cons while he was apologizing to people for it not coming out. He had a he had a very rough uh, <laughs> rough ride with this, trying to get it produced, and then once he got it actually produced, Amazon fulfillment was really bad. Mm. But uh, it finally got here, and I was I was very very pleased with it. I I really wish I could play it more often. I can't wait to play it with you in Meat Space, <laughs> Frank. What else have you been up to? The latest acquisition is, yes, another Kickstarter, but a video game with a lot of board gamey kind you're of things. You're doing all video called... games this episode. I think you're on the wrong podcast, Frank. I know. <laughs> you know, we haven't, we've really been in bubble, so we barely left the house. But Pop-Up Dungeon is the thing, and it went crazy Kickstarter-y with a ton of expansions and content. And so basically what you do is you'd have to play through Steam remote play. So you're doing some screen swapping and you get three to six characters, which are all fold together cubes made of paper. Well, made of virtual paper cardstock. And you beam down in a cardstock world and I'm getting paused by Sandy to say something. Five, only five characters. Mm. Pity me. Okay. <laughs> Three to five characters. Uh, cardstock, beam down in a cardstock world. And you basically do things. The base game is like a roguelike in that you run 25 levels of a wizard's tower. 
And the only things you get to keep between levels are charms, which are group party upgrades that you can gradually upgrade out of a big vending machine with a crafting system that lets you combine charms. But then there are also three entire campaigns. One of those campaigns is a weird one that has you flying through the stars to get your ship back and includes ship combat, some extra crafting, and an elaborate huge system on top of it. What you get is, aside from the basic grid combat that you kind of see in every miniatures heavy game, um, they have an entire choose-your-own-paragraph creator system for dialogue trees and tracking stats of whatever kind of stats you create. So there's an entire ship upgrade and ship combat system that's built around their non-miniature combat game. Frank, you had me at roguelike. Oh, I know. But the campaigns aren't roguelike, which is weird, because one of those campaigns was like 15, 16 hours for that star campaign. And after every combat, you get items, random item drops that you can use to upgrade your personal items. Plus, you occasionally get abilities. Each character starts with two to four ability cards, which do very different things. And you can gradually swap out and upgrade those abilities, as well as change how many action points you get. It's an action point system where you spend action points to move or attack. But all of this, the entire game, the characters, the everything has creator tools behind it and they use the same creator tools to make content and it's linked to steam workshop so if you go into like the character creator and look at user user created characters that are balanced for the base game you can download darth vader spongebob squarepants shrek (laughs) a lot of horrible licensings that could never ever include fully voiced And it's easy, supposedly, looking at some of their videos, you can create a four-hour adventure with it in about two hours. All right, fine. I'm buying it, Frank. You've convinced me. (laughs) One thing, though, I had to go look this up because everything you just described sounds like it was made for me, which, you know. (laughs) Pop-Up Dungeon is an amazing tactical miniatures kind of board gamey thing. I'm in. The next item I have on my list, which is kind of a bigger category, is the improvements to virtual conventions and virtual board gaming in general. Now, I am in no way suggesting that virtual events are better than in-person ones, because I think certainly at this point we're all more than ready to get back to playing some games in meat space. But what I will say is that the large number of sort of virtual versions of conventions that have been going on have, I think, been really good for the hobby. You're getting involvement from a lot of people who wouldn't normally be able or be willing to go to real conventions. I've been able to see so many more demos and reviews and live play sessions of games that I didn't know existed between all the virtual Gen Con, the board game geek thing, and virtual spiel, and the shut up and sit down online convention and all that stuff. There's just been a ton of stuff out there. And kind of like we talked about with Forgotten Waters, companies are becoming very cognizant of what needs to be done for online play. And I think even when, good Lord willing, the creek don't rise, when physical gaming becomes more common again, I think we're still going to have a lot to benefit from in terms of the things we learned over the past months. Yeah, I I really do hope that a lot of physical conventions recognize that there is an ability to have that digital component, especially when it comes to something like board games, so that they can be more inclusive and reach more people than, say, they had been. 
I think that this is only something that can improve the hobby. Yeah, I, I just I'm looking forward to a time when it is an option rather than the only option. Yes, I agree. Yeah, it's been nice because our headquarters for our company is in Chicago and they have a board game shelf, an elaborately curated board game shelf, as well as like a biweekly game session that they play in the break room there but they had to go virtual so i was able to join from all the way down here in atlanta very cool that's kind of cool like a company that takes time to set up stuff like that is always fascinating yeah of course there's been the other side of that where some game companies have been cracking down on sort of the unofficial digital implementations on things like tabletop simulator that's my day <clears throat> sorry sure and I can't blame them for doing that in a lot of cases because it is their intellectual property, especially if they have or plan to do an official version. I'm happy to pay money for an official version of a game, but if it's the only way I can play it, I'm not afraid to do a little bit of a virtual play, especially because it's almost always a game I own a physical copy of anyway. Yeah. And like I've said it before, but I think that companies need to recognize that, especially right now, digital is just a thing that exists and they should try to use it to harbor good vibes with their customers. And a lot of companies have done that thing. And here's the sad part. Like you said, if Asmodee or any other company makes a good version of a digital implementation, like the board game hobbyists will buy it. Mm -hmm. It's complicated. I mean, like the thing is, ultimately, a lot of the stuff that's happening online right now is going to go back to in-person because the amount of internet hype you get from an in-person thing, right, and the fear of missing out is just going to drive more attendance and is going to drive more purchases, right? So yeah. it's just a thing. Let's cycle back to Mike. So Fantasy Flight did just release this year. I think the expansion to Arkham Horror that the world needed right now, <laughs> which is Barkham Horror, the card game, which actually started as a April Fool's joke that they posted on their website uh, two years ago, three years ago, where they replaced all of the characters in their game with dogs. And of course, the bad guys are the cats, because, you know, cats are inevitably going to dominate their owners and rule the world if they have not already really done the so. best thing about this is how badly it misunderstands lovecraft mythos like just like an astounding amount it's so great <laughs> it should have um, been the exact opposite from an animal perspective like literally the exact opposite why no. do you say that because in the Lovecraft mythos, dogs are nothing, but cats it's are good. True. But in this, you play as dogs, and it's got some hilarious puns in it, and it is just adorable and fires on all cylinders. It is super cute. Of course, Jason and I played through it with uh, Curtis and friend of the show, Anna. No, Curtis abandoned us. Remember? Oh, he that's there. true. Oh, Curtis did abandon us to his computer Did he ruin his computer, computer leak. <laughs> yes. But yeah, we lost, as I think is only appropriate. The cats did win and dominated the universe, and thus is why cats are better than dogs. Well, I mean, you are surrounded by cats currently, so... <laughs> Mike, are you a hostage? <laughs> yes, he definitely is. Yeah, blink twice I if the cats are listening. I don't know what you're talking about, Jason. <laughs> Although, Mike, did you kill a cat over the course of this game? Uh, No, no, in fact... <laughs> Oh, in okay. the description of the game. In Ulthor, no man may kill a cat. <laughs> so, I know. So in the description of the game, 
as you're playing it, you, you do have to fight the cat enemies. And one of them says, when this enemy would be defeated, the cat runs away. We're not monsters. <laughs> nice. They have taken that into consideration. No animals were hurt during the making of this game. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, it, it was a super fun scenario. Like, we, we lost horribly, which, of course, is Curtis's fault. But uh, it was fun to see something that was literally just a joke that was embraced so so much by the fans that they decided to make it. And honestly, I hope they keep making them, because, like, the puns are painful, but they got to keep them coming. One of the characters literally has a Catling gun <laughs> as his weapon. <laughs> oh, God. I do love that one of the characters makes their deck and, and their deck creation options. It's just, you can have... This color, this color, and five objects that you think are smelly. <laughs> what that means, that's up to you. Just go. <laughs> it's fun to see when a developer can take the mechanics that they've created and just say, fuck it, let's do something just insane. It was a delight. Joe, how about you? So one other game that I actually discovered at AFK, and I've actually gotten to the table a couple of more times, mostly thanks to a certain host of this podcast schedule on Saturdays being totally messed up for the entire year, mm-hmm. was Horrified, which is a cooperative game where you are just normal people, and you're fighting against all of the monsters of the Universal Monster series, right? So Dracula, Wolfman, Monsters in the Black Lagoon, The Mummy, kind of all the classics. And you are trying to, as a table, uh, defeat some set of these monsters. The game is very easy to teach and very easy to play. The way you fight each of the monsters is different, right? They each have this kind of unique mini game that is associated with them. And I have found kind of exploring all those mini games to be a lot of fun. And the game is super cute. All the NPCs are like Laurel and Hardy and like a bunch of other characters from a bunch of those movies. Igor and all that kind of stuff. When we played this on Saturdays, like I find it fascinating that the game can drastically change depending on the pairs of enemies that you're facing. The harder difficulties just add additional enemies in, which I think is kind of a great way to tailor the experience to what you're looking for. I think we did Dracula and the Creature from the Black Lagoon. It was interesting. Yeah, and this is another game that just recently went on Amazon on sale for like $26. Like, it's a huge amount of value for such a small price tag. And yeah, I played it with Joe at AFK for the first time as well, and I absolutely enjoyed it. It was was a wonderful game. And it's nice to have a simple co-op that you can teach people. And of course, everyone's familiar with the monsters in some way, shape, or fashion. So it's really easy to understand, okay, Wolfman's bad. Let's go figure out how we have to defeat him for this scenario. And I think we can all agree that it's great that it uses those classic, what is it, 60s versions of the enemies rather than their even before then. failed attempt at rebooting all of their classic <laughs> monsters. 30s. 30s. There 30s. You don't want to play as uh, Tom Cruise, Mike? I mean... <laughs> No? <laughs> Was he in those movies, he really? The mummy, yeah. Oh, God. We're all Tom Cruise now. <laughs> That's one thing. Prospera Hall is actually a pseudonym for a game design group in Seattle. And if you see his name as designer, because they do publish their own games occasionally, but they're more of a design house for other companies, and they do mostly licensed games, but they're really good at that small, light, heavily themed game. We got a Haunted Mansion game designed by them that's actually pretty good recently. It's 
kind of got a sushi go thing going for it like one Ooh. of the things i like about horrified is like it is a game i could very easily imagine like taking home and playing with my mom and dad right yeah it's totally. got that level of feel to it yeah very very approachable Their games are simple good they're well thought out it's stunning mm-hmm. there is a shining game that's already out you can get it at the usual mass market kind of places I haven't played it, but it does have a gorgeous Room 222 hotel key that comes with it. <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, yeah. So, Jason, tell us about something else you liked from the last year. Well, apparently I like triggering jokes. I'm going to talk about Tainted Grail. Oh, dear. <laughs> ah, Tainted Grail. <laughs> well, you've done it now. So, uh, yeah. So you go, and then I'll complain for a minute. <laughs> so Tainted Grail is coming out of the good folks at Awakened Realms. Whenever they make a game, it at least gets my attention and usually gets my money. And the idea here is it's kind of a weird hybrid of taking kind of the exploration system from, let's say, Seventh Continent, where you're moving around cards and the cards have different actions you can take on them. And it also kind of has that same sort of survival aspect where you're collecting resources. And then it combines it with kind of a paragraph game where you're going to these places and you're basically trying to uncover what your quest is, trying to figure out how you're going to accomplish your goals. And all the while learning about the crazy history of an island called Avalon. Avalon was a magical island that centuries ago humans came over and conquered because that's what the humans do. They're real jerks about it. Yep. They pushed the people who lived there called the Four Dwellers away. And um, to protect the humans, they built these things called Menhirs that keep the evil magic called the Weirdness away from the human settlements. It's actually just called the Weirdness? It's called the Weirdness with a Y because of course. Yep. Oh, well, okay. well, that's all right then. Yeah. I mean, that's how you know it's magical. (laughs) But, like, your characters, the characters you're playing as, you're kind of the (laughs) B-team. The the actual heroes of the realm went off to go recover the Holy Grail and go, you know, save the island because the Menhirs are all failing and the weirdness is creeping in and ruining everything. Oh, thank God somebody is on that. Yeah, well, they were. (laughs) So they just never come back, and uh, you're you're kind of their apprentices and kind of the B-team. You're all horribly flawed people with really bad problems. Like, uh, one guy's like a rage monster, basically, <laughs> and uh, one guy's a failed druid. Like, you're all kind of screw-ups in one, one way, shape, yeah. or form, but you're all they've got left. <laughs> and so you go off and... How does one go about being a failed druid? Drug overdose. Yeah, he's a drug addict. Yeah. <laughs> literally his problem. So not so much a druid as much as just like... Uh, a hippie? A stoner. Yeah. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> Except he also has nightmares. Yeah. Man, those get brutal. Oh, yeah. So paragraph game and exploration and miniatures. This sounds great, Jason. Why don't I have a copy of this game? Nah, 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 nah. Uh, I, don't know. <laughs> I did pay them money for Me it, too, right? Me too, Joe. <laughs> that did happen, right? <laughs> so freaking Tainted Grail. I'm excited to play the game during the Kickstarter process, during the backer kit process. They were like, hey. Would you like to help us out and get combined shipping? That means we'll ship you one shipment instead of multiple shipments. And I was like, yes, as a company, I respect you and would like to help you out. And they're like, cool. That means you'll get all of phase zero and phase one at the same time. And also, you're never getting phase zero until phase one comes out. It's been like a year. It's been an infinite amount of time, as far as I can tell. Yeah, Jason's had his copy for quite a while, and Joe and I do not and are not likely to anytime real soon. I am extremely frustrated by the way that they handle that. The idea that something that they ask you to do, which is like, hey, could you please do combined shipping? And then it's like, cool, you did combined shipping, sucker. (laughs) 
Yeah. It just drives me crazy. Yeah. I mean, obviously they didn't mean it that way, but they certainly could have done a better job of explaining the implications. Yeah. Well, and they're way off their timelines anyway. So, like, I think the original idea was it'd be a couple of months delay for you to get your right stuff. Right now it's, like, it's eight months, and it'll probably be a year and a half, I would guess. Maybe. Oh. Yeah. So... Considering that they're just now starting to ship their previous Kickstarter. Yeah. They're just way behind. And so, like, that's the frustrating part. Like, if they would have been on their normal timeline, I probably wouldn't have noticed. But... Yeah. That's not the way it worked out. So, I am so frustrated about it. <laughs> Yeah, it's not great to have to wait a year for something that other people already have. No. Um, I mm-hmm. definitely had that experience with other Kickstarters, mm-hmm. but yeah, it was not well handled. <laughs> Actually, back to the game, Tainted Grail, the impressive part about it is... Sorry, Sandy's giggling in the background. I'm sure that's perfectly safe and not a bad sign at all. Good point. <laughs> is, that, uh, <laughs> is that really it's one big giant game broken into chapters? Absolutely nothing pretty much resets... At the start of of a chapter, no matter how much you might want yeah, it to, yeah, <laughs> you you mean you keep all the crap you've got piled on you, damage and everything. Monsters mercifully go off the board and get reset with new monsters to abuse and annoy you, but it just keeps going. And there are changes that dramatically shift what's going to happen in the campaign. So it's one long, epically branching game. Yeah, and there's the nice thing is, like, there's a lot of different ways you can go about things. Like, I've been talking to other people who've already played through the game, and they've had some very, very different experiences. Now, of course, the overall plot that you're trying to accomplish stays relatively the same, although you kind of can choose your factions and stuff along the way. It's not a perfect game. There's a lot of resource slogging. <laughs> chapter 7 can die in a fire, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, fuck Chapter 7. Oh my god. Literally, I feel like Chapter 7 took as much time as the previous six chapters put together. Okay, then. Right, Joe? Yeah, fuck Chapter 7. <laughs> I sure wish I had a basis for comparison. <sighs> but other people that have played it, like, oh, yeah, I started Chapter 7 and I already accomplished its goals, so I moved immediately to Chapter 8. Like, that's what I'm talking about. It can be very, very different for each group that's playing through it. Mm. And that's a strength and sometimes it's a weakness. I know that when you guys will finally get your stuff, it'll include all the stuff, the, the, the later waves, where you play the heroes on the island before the main game and the heroes of the island after the main game. So there's supposed to be some gameplay changes that are going to be pretty significant that I'm looking forward to seeing how that plays out, um, especially now that they've got feedback from people about, you know, hey, this part could have worked yeah. better, this part I really liked. But the story yeah. is awesome. I think that the thing driving me most is trying to find out what happens in the story. I really genuinely enjoy what they've written there. And it's compressed and compact, and the story is the game. You're making choices during the story, and there's no more than two or three paragraphs of reading before you yes. make a choice. And that something that some other people could really learn from. <laughs> Why are you side-eyeing your box of Madara? I don't... <laughs> I can't wait to find out for myself. Frank, in your, in your playthrough, how many people are you playing? Three, but we stopped back in February when basically we bubbled. So... We haven't picked it up since. Yeah, it's one of those games I suspect plays better at lower player counts. Yeah, it'd be a little long otherwise. And I think we have this three dedicated for all these campaign games. And it seems almost perfect for everything. Frank, tell us about something. So I guess I should keep my trend and not talk about board games again. <sighs> Why do we even have you on this show? I do you know. know anything about board games, Frank? Uh, yeah, I just don't get to play. <laughs> 2020 sucked because we couldn't play any of them. I have a big stack of them downstairs that... that they're just looking at me, mocking me. Mm. And it's an old game called Card Hunters. Mm. It started as a Flash game from like 2012. And it's free on Steam. 
So it's free to play on Steam and it's ancient which should set off like billions of warning <laughs> bells for everyone. Because it turns out you really don't need to actually pay the money. And the game is really good. I really dig Car Hunters. I'm a big fan. Yeah, I mean, the campaign is long. You go through 25 levels of character and maybe 40 different dungeons. Each dungeon has two to four combats. Your character consists of a basically a typical archetype wizard warrior dwarf whatever and your class and race determine your starting set of cards but they also determine what kind of items you can equip and each item comes with its set of two to four cards or more for the wands and weapons and this entire set of cards from all the stuff you equip pile into your deck and you basically are playing a little deck builder where that's your action when you do it. They have a huge amount of variety. Is one of the things that I really appreciate about the game is like the different kinds of powers you can get from weapons vary a lot and it feels extremely different when you change weapons. Yeah. You're like, oh man, I didn't even think of this combo with this armor with this weapon will let me move forward and do a double attack. That's awesome. It's intricate. It's got the capriciousness of a deck uh-huh. builder, but six or 700 cards, they're combos. The monsters that you deal with have their own combos, and some of them really require some thinking and planning and re-equipping your character to actually try to deal with, because they'll just take you down in one hit, or you know abuse you so badly that you won't be able to fight back. And some of the things that are just like harassment, kind of, that just slow movement, become critical in certain combats. So you can not only tailor your character on the fly quickly by just re-equipping, but your particular group of three has to be in sync. The co-op is actually working quite well. After the first hour game where it runs you through a lengthy tutorial, you can drop in three players, each of you play a character, and then just go through the rest of the campaign. I haven't had a chance to try that one because I mostly played it when it was a Flash game, so I hadn't actually played the multiplayer. So I'm interested to get that to the table. I still play it with Flash because I'm on a Mac. Uh. And uh, yeah, the Flash version sports co-op. It really is still turn-based, and still has the same rules, but it you know leads control over that character to the person who owns that character. So you each take one character from your roster. We sunk, oh, I don't know, 40 hours or so into it to play the full campaign. So it's really long. Each player has a paper doll, and that paper doll allows you to equip like some number of weapons and some amount of armor and some elf abilities. If you're an elf, <laughs> right? Like It's like a very much a paper doll, and you can have a certain number of orbs in essence and like more powerful weapons require more orbs. And there's like a total orb limit, which is how it really controls how strong you are for a specific mission to kind of balance the challenge. Joe, they're not dolls. They are collectible action posable figures. I mean, no, it's clearly papered. I mean, like (laughs) the standees, they are cardboard standees. Like that's the art style of the game is cardboard standees. Yeah. I'm looking at it. They're pretty great. No, I mean, like if you haven't played it, I think you definitely should give it a try. It's free, right? You don't have to pay the money. The biggest complaint I probably have is the way they handle money, right? You can subscribe to them, which I think is stupid. I'd much rather that they sold you like expansion packs as opposed to subscribing. They do sell expansion packs that come with a number of extra adventures and then give you a bunch of pizza which is their pay for money that gives you all the perks. So they changed it. Because like when I originally played, it was just subscribing. Yeah. I was like, eh, I don't love that. No. Basically, they have the original set, and then they have some add-ons that give you the extra adventures, some characters, nice. some pizza, <laughs> and, and a month of the extra perks. Even though there's really not a reason to do that, we did pay them because their game is so good. 
And in a lot of ways, I think it's as deep or deeper than Slay the Spire, but it's spread out over a longer time and you can redo your character at any time huh. and, you know, mix and match between weapons. I mean, honestly, just the thought of a game in that vein that is multiplayer. multiplayer. Oh, yeah, yeah, I want to try multiplayer. <laughs> the fact that it fully nicely supported multiplayer now makes me pretty excited. So, um, Mike, when you want to go check it out, let me know. We can go check it out together. I'm in. It wants three, but yeah. I'd get in on that. I had a copy back when it first came out on Steam. I haven't played much of it in a while, but I'd be happy to dive back in. Give it a look. Check out our new stream. Ascent of Board Games plays Card Hunter. It's going to be great. I could set One that thing up in about time, 15 Mike. seconds, sure. I mean, yes, yes, that is a thing yeah. that can happen. The last one I wanted to toss out is one that I've really just started exploring, but from what I've seen so far, the potential of it is really pretty exciting. And that is the Unmatched Games which are basically two-player little tactical combo games. You have Jack the Ripper versus Sherlock Holmes. You have Robin Hood versus Bigfoot. You have singles like Bruce Lee and Buffy the Vampire Slayer. It's a fairly small and simple design space, but they do all play very differently. And the great thing is that you can play any of them against the others. So you can have Bruce Lee versus Velociraptors or Jack the Ripper versus Buffy the Vampire Slayer or whatever combination you're into. It's only a two-player game, which I don't get to play as often as I'd like. But just the sort of modularity and the way they've been able to give them a lot of flavor within a fairly small number of cards and pieces. And I think there is just room for so much more for this develop. They've been good at getting licenses for things that are cool. They've got Jurassic Park. They've got things from Bruce Lee's estate, which has historically been fairly hard to work out. I'm just really excited to see where they go with it. I think the most important thing about the Unmatched Games is they answer the age-old question of who would win in a fight between X and Y. Yep, exactly. Yeah. Oh, totally. It's an expansion of the old Star Wars Epic Duels game mm -hmm. and does support four players, two on two, which is a good battle. Oh, that's right. I guess it does. Basically, the fact that they're no longer tied to Star Wars means that the characters are much more distinctive and they've upped the rules and the board to be more tactically interesting by far. So, I mean, it's a vast improvement over Epic Tools, which was already a pretty good game to begin with. Yeah, they basically lifted the Tannhauser line of sight rules too, didn't they? With the, uh, the colored yeah, rings. Yeah, there's a very Tannhauser kind of thing going. Which yeah. have historically been pretty good. Oh, yeah, That's actually no, I... the best thing that Tannhauser brought to the game space was those sight lines. I know, and uh, nothing else. It was a decent game, but yeah, those sight lines were great. Let's look at a brighter future. Let's talk about things we're hoping for in 2021. And I think collectively, we can all agree that being in the same room as another individual with physical components is a given. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think we all want that. Mm -hmm. Right before we went into quarantine, our group had started a game of Clank Legacy, and we got exactly one game deep, and then we stopped. And I am really actually looking forward to revisiting Clank Legacy because just that one game, I was like, oh yeah, I kind of like Clank as a game. That was fun. We should do this more. Yeah, that one looks like it's going to be fun. I could have inserted literally any blank Legacy game into there, but this is one that we have already have. I've said it before, I have a hard time looking at games that are yet to exist because down that path lies poverty. <laughs> I'm really excited to continue our playthrough of that because it looks like it's got some really interesting components. Yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to getting back to that. But like you say, there's, there's so many things on the campaign list that we want to get going on. Joe, do you have any hope for the future? <laughs> I do. I'm just going to name like a hundred million games right now. <laughs> 
really fast so Brian can't stop me. Damn it. I barely only get one, but I have like a dozen. Yeah, I mean, my big thing I'm looking forward for 2021 is all these goddamn Kickstarters. <laughs> yeah, amen to that. Sure, Kickstarter games. Yeah, I'll cheat. I'll cheat. That's a great idea. I'll cheat. I'll cheat. The thing I'm excited for is all the Kickstarter games that I have gotten or will get in the next year or two. So Spirit Island, Jagged Island just came in. I'm really excited to play that with people. Ooh, yeah. Monumental came in right as we were all kind of locking down. I'm really excited to get that to the table. King Death Monster is bound to come out this year. I have hope. <laughs> 101 Odysseys might be coming out this year as well. They're pretty close. Oath is definitely coming out this year. Return to Dark Tower won't be coming out this year, but I'm really excited for it. There's all these Kickstarters that are like, might be here any minute. <laughs> I'm really excited by. I so. did actually get to play Monumental. That's really good. It has a kind of a light 4X, but more important, it has this weird row and column deck building thing where you can activate the cards in a row and column of one of the cards you pick after you deal them out randomly and then do all the actions on those cards. And the cards themselves are really simple. And so you do a lot on your turn by cards, but it's actually really a 4X game. Huh. I have no recognition of this game, but sounds like something I would like to play. It's actually almost a little overdone with the plastic minis. They Wait, a Kickstarter that's overdone? <laughs> that kind of actually got in the way, but a really nice integration of 4X and deck building. It's not that vicious. I mean, it's a little vicious toward the end of the game, but not that bad. I was surprised. Yeah, I was in the same boat as you, Brian. I'd never heard of the game. Mm-hmm. That was at Joe's house, and there's a pile of boxes just next to him. He started opening it up like, wait, this is a giant like battles minis game, and I never How heard of it. How do I not How? already own this? <laughs> Right, it's on the list of games that I'm excited to try once we can all see each other in person again, so. Yeah, I have a big list of stuff that I'm expecting to get in 2021 as well. Sleeping Gods is a big one. Oathsworn, I am looking forward to so much. I haven't been that excited about a game in a long time. Oh, I know. Frosthaven, of course. Also, I did just get my copy of Pandemic Legacy Season Zero, and I want to finish that trilogy. Yeah, we played the demo that they released on Tabletop Simulator a few nights ago mm-hmm. and it was really good i enjoyed it it's definitely different i'm very excited to see how it actually all plays out because it, it definitely feels a lot different than normal pandemic because the, the mechanics are, are different enough but you can still kind of see the base pandemic shining through yeah season one was more or less pandemic with some legacy bits on season two was kind of anti-pandemic and this is just sort of a sideways look at the pandemic mechanics you can still see them there i'm anxious to get it on the table as we've said about so many things Jason. I mean, you mentioned probably the one I'm most excited to looking at. That would be Oathsworn yeah. and Deepwood. Um, that's probably tops in terms of what I'm super looking forward to. I, of course, looking forward to Sleeping Gods as well. Mm-hmm. That's also on my list just because I really like Red Raven's output. And I, I think they've really been doing a good job with their more recent releases. And Sleeping Gods looks like a kind of an amalgamation of all the things I really liked in a the previous ones. A perfect co campaign exploration game. Yeah, totally. Yes. Yeah, that's let's hope. Um, but one that we haven't mentioned yet, um, and this is again from Awakened Realms, who I swear I'm not getting paid by, <laughs> is uh, Etherfields or Etherfields or however people want to pronounce it. Oh, damn, it. I need to talk about another one now. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Frank. <laughs> I don't even know how to, and maybe you can help me out here, Frank. I don't even know how to really explain this game. You're basically they call it a dream. Dreamers? They call it a dream crawler, and literally, you're like weird, screwed up, half dream things. There's a guy with one wing, someone who's like levitating a pile of books as far as characters. 
you're forced to take masks, which you're not allowed to see the back until you choose which mask you want to be, but it's very important. And there's an, a giant overworld of dreams and abstract things. And then when you make it into an adventure, you hop into somebody else's dream and have to figure out what the hell is going on. So it's incredibly surreal. It's supposed to include escape room and weird meta concepts. Fighting is all very resource intensive. And on top of that, the entire game is a deck builder. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> as if that as, a, as a campaign yeah i mean so you keep your deck for your character and reading the rules it looks amazing yeah the miniatures are absolutely spectacular i don't think you could ever use them in any other game because they're so bizarre you don't have a need for a business penguin come on i mean <laughs> everybody needs a business everyone penguin. has a need for a business penguin i think we're all aware of that <laughs> I ordered this game because it looked really interesting. The miniatures were gorgeous. And then over the past couple of months, I've sort of had second thoughts. It's like, I don't know. I mean, the miniatures are cool, but I don't know anything about the game. It was an impulse buy I maybe shouldn't have done. And then as they're getting close to release, I've been seeing more and more videos and things. And they're like, no, I actually am really interested in this game. Yeah, and even some of the add-ons, there are card boxes, which are these elaborate filigree resin sundrop, if you got that with magnets. With magnetic tops. Yeah, it's so ridiculously overproduced. I love it. (laughs) And the the actual art in the game is just jaw-dropping. I mean, levels Mm -hmm. that we're not used to seeing in board games practically a work of art i think i'm just hoping it holds up because man they put so much into it i think it's probably the most different of the games i'm looking forward to next year like it has the most potential for just being something truly unique or it could just fall flat on its face we'll see i mean sure (laughs) well you know there have certainly been games i've gotten in the past that i'm like this is either going to be brilliant or a tremendous train wreck and the last one of those i think was gloomhaven and that turned out okay oh yeah (laughs) so uh i feel cautiously optimistic about this one it's funny that you mentioned that because I'm also looking forward to another Kickstarter. And I am proud to say that it is one of two outstanding Kickstarters that I have, and that is the release of Frosthaven. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I am very excited to see what they've learned in the development of Jaws of the Lion mm-hmm. and having finished a couple of printings of Gloomhaven. I'm excited to see how that game evolves. Oh, yeah. So Frank, now that Jason has stolen your next one, do you have do you have anything else that gives you hope for the future? Just because of that, I'm going to talk about two. Hell, the Last Saga is by Mythic. Oh yeah, I got to play a demo of it at Gen Con. It's um pretty much your campaign. It's not really a deck builder, but you have a limited number of actions. Do the things, kill the monsters, finish the quest on the mission. Nothing is absolutely outstanding, except it's gorgeous. The minis are great. The game is very simple, really compact. You don't get a lot of turns, so it's a little puzzly. And I suspect the missions won't get a lot of replayability because the missions are so tightly wound and how many turns you have to complete things. The demo mission was only six turns. They did say it was on the short side, but it's just one of those good focused, okay, we have to do this. You have to do this. That'll give us another couple turns to, you know, help him take out this monster to clear the path so we can get going forward kind of thing. So it had that good kind of heavy co-op feel that I think will actually make a good game. And not very complex. I mean, they taught the rules to us in about 10 minutes. And like the idea is there's a story that unfolds, Oh, totally. Story campaign, branching missions. You know the drill. (laughs) And resources are important. And getting new items, of course. I mean, it's level up. Keep your levels. All the campaign questy kind of game stuff. 
the tiles are big. I mean, to cross the entire first map was about five tiles from where you started, but a pretty small, compact kind of thing. Yeah, I watched one of the demos they did a, a while ago, and kind of interesting based on how the mission goes and maybe some choices you make where you get different versions of characters. Like Totally, yeah. I don't know. This guy is now the suspicious because you didn't do this thing he asked you to do in that mission or, or you know whatever the, the exact example I know. is, but I thought that was interesting. I practically interesting. saw a, he'll remember that from the Telltale games. <laughs> <laughs> yes. The other one's a role-playing game called The Shivers, which kind of role-playing game. It would be a narrative GM'd pop-up escape room game. Okay. Which promptly everyone's going to Kickstarter to look up this one. And it <laughs> takes place on a series of pop-up rooms, which has a card in to replace the actual escape roomy elements. And so you have to open cupboards and see things inside the little pop-up thing. But uh, yeah, I mean, it looks gorgeous. It is more of a role-playing game because it does have GM narration and everything. But Oh my God, it looks so awesome. And so out of the ordinary. And it's also aimed for seven plus. So, I mean, wow, that's skewing a little young. Oh, age. I thought you meant number of players. And I was, I was rather confused. <laughs> and Brian, are you looking forward to anything in 2021? Well, I mean, I already talked about the big pile of board game Kickstarters that I'm looking forward that's to right. along with everybody else. But the one thing I did want to add is that I did a miniatures terrain Kickstarter order a while back that looks like it's going to be coming in end of this year, beginning of next year, called Hagglethorn Hollow. And it's basically from a Weta sculptor, one of the guys who did all the Lord of the Rings stuff and that kind of thing. And it's just this gorgeous sort of old ruins with a slightly fey look to them. It's molded in resin, it's pre-painted, and it just looks absolutely gorgeous. I, I can't wait to use it for some Malifaux you know, maybe some tabletop role-playing game campaigns if those ever happen again. And it's just super pretty, and I can't wait to get it on the table. I mean, it ain't cheap. They start at kind of expensive and go to, holy crap, you spent... Stupid expensive. Yes, exactly. But yeah, it is just a really impressive array of stuff between ruins and taverns, and they all kind of like stack together in different combinations, so it's all modular. And the roofs lift off so you can do stuff inside. It's just really super yeah, pretty. and the sculpting is jaw-dropping. On his original yeah. set, they did a tested episode with Adam Savage mm -hmm. looking through his mm -hmm. personal set. And it's just... Uh, it, it, oh. Yeah, and they've got a lot more stuff coming. They've got these tree animal creatures coming out that look like they're going to be spectacular. Oh, yeah. And, uh, I cannot possibly justify the expense. Uh, hopefully Megan is not listening to this. <laughs> I cannot possibly justify the expense, but it is just gorgeous and I can't wait to get it. Joe, are you setting up a stream? Because I just yep. got a notification that uh, yep. we have logged into yep, Twitch. I set up a Twitch account <laughs> for a set of wow. I told you it would take, it's all of five seconds of work. It's already done. Watch this space, folks. <laughs> <laughs> all right. You heard it, folks. Join us. Surprise announcement. There we go. We're doing it live. <laughs> Surprises us too. Yep. Dear listeners, be safe. Wear a mask. For wear sure. a mask. Wear a mask. Wash your hands. Find alternatives to being in physical meat space with your friends and loved ones just a bit longer. Yes. There is a bright future on the horizon someday. And we would love to hear what you're looking forward to. Exactly. Give us some more reasons for hope. <laughs>
Also give us some reviews on mm. iTunes, because that makes us all feel really hopeful. <laughs> but yeah, please comment on our Facebook page, comment on the posts on the website. Uh, we just like hearing from you and knowing that there are people out there who are actually paying some degree of attention to what we're saying. Apparently, you can catch us on our new stream of <laughs> Yeah, that games. seems like a thing that's apparently going to happen. More news about that when we have it. So everybody be safe. We will talk to you, assuming the whole world has not imploded, on January 1st, 2021 for a fresh new start. In the meantime, stay safe, have fun, play some games, and we'll talk to you next time. Bye. 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 We hope you have enjoyed this episode of The Ascent of Board Games, which is protected by the Creative Commons license. Opening and closing music is Evening Melodrama by Kevin MacLeod via Incompetech.com. Full details can be found at AscentOfBoardGames.com. Please share, like, subscribe, review, and comment on this podcast, and thank you for listening. I will edit you back into the appropriate place, and no one will ever know I've made a mistake. Except us. Well, I'll have to murder you all. <laughs>